0: We're glad you're here this morning with us. My name is Pastor Justin, one of the pastor's elders here at Peninsula Grace. If you're new or just here for the summer, this is how the weather is all the time, Uh, just year-round. This is, you're basically in San Diego, you don't even notice. we have been walking through this study uh, through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, or excuse me, Samuel, and we'll be getting into Kings, uh, but we're looking at the first three kings of Israel's history. David, or excuse me, Saul, David, and Solomon. We're calling it King of Kings, looking at God's sovereign work through these Israel's, uh, Israel's human kings. Now, as a recap, Saul was the first king of Israel. What did we see with Saul? He, we saw a failure to trust God, and so now God has chosen David, the, this, who will be the second king, to take his place. And what we're going to see this morning is that transition's going to start to happen and it ain't pretty. We're going to see Saul quickly move from loving David, the liar playing shepherd boy, soothing his soul to hating David and even trying to kill him. But we'll watch God sovereignly save David and thwart Saul's repeated attempts to take out his chosen king and actually use that to grow David in the process. The prayer is for us this morning, as we watch the continual demise of Saul, that we would not just look at him and scoff, but that we would hold up a mirror to our own souls, see our own Saul-like tendencies and go running to the gospel. That's my hope and prayer for this morning. What we're going to see, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 18 this morning, and um, we're going to see David's humble ascent before we see Saul's prideful descent. Now, David, there's quite the love fest going David in this chapter. If if this was Twitter, then David's, uh, his his name is trending all over Twitter, right? You can see that. Go ahead and read the hashtags. I've created those. I'm pretty proud of some of them. I thought sling to the king afterwards, sling to the king, to the sing, to the, okay. Um but he's coming off the heels of defeating the giant right G- giving israel their victory over this long time uh, philistine army and it's the kind of the american tale right rags to here comes david rising from obscurity in the sheep fields and now he's slaying giants and what we're going to see in chapter 18 is eve loves david you remember the 90s sitcom everybody loves raymond we just made a little uh, artistic rendition there, and uh, we, if the millennials are like, what is that? I don't even know. what What is television? I um, had a roommate in college. His name was Andrew, and he was one of these guys that just had it all, right? He was that combination where he was good-looking, he was funny, he was musical, he was athletic, he was Canadian. He had it all, right? Everything you could ever want and hope for in a person had a large man crush on, on Andrew, um, but now I'm a happily married man. So, I, uh, da- <laughs> all right. David uh, is, is same same idea. He is a ruddy faced. Remember they called him ruddy faced, which meant he was handsome. Uh, David, we've we've already seen that he plays the lyre, which was their version of the guitar. Girls always go for the musicians. He's clubbing lions and now giants. Oh my. We see that, that David is this, becomes this great commander of an army. He's got brain and brawn. David's the entire package. And what we're going to see in this chapter is everyone loves David. Verse 1, Jonathan loves David. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. We're going to look next week in chapter 20 especially at this incredible friendship of David and Jonathan. Uh, Saul himself at this point loves David. Saul took him that day would not let him return to his father's house. Remember how their relationship began. Back in chapter 16, it said Saul loved him greatly. Why? Because his first encounter with David was David playing the liar to soothe Saul's tormenting spirit. So Saul loves David. And then we're going to see that everybody, all of Israel, loves David. David went out, verse 5, and was successful wherever he went. So Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So it's David coming into town on the shoulders of the Israelites, high-fiving everybody. Everyone's going, David is the best. And then we see this spontaneous Disney musical break out in the next verses where everyone magically knows the words. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul. They're also celebrating King Saul, note that with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments, and the women sang to one another as they celebrated, and here was the song that they sang. We don't have the tune, but it says, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. So, if you ever were wondering, how do you know when you're popular, if there are women dancing in the street, singing songs about you to one another, you made, you made it, right? You did it. Congratulations. Uh, it's the new chart-topping single in Israel as they sing this song. Now, as you look at this word, this is, this is what we call in Hebrew, it's, it's parallelism. And in Hebrew song or poetry, it's very common. David himself, who pens many of the songs, sort of like how we, we rhyme a lot in our song, they would do what they call parallelism, where the first line is sort of echoed or reinforced by the second line. So Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. The ESV study Bible notes say basically it's just saying Saul and David a lot of people now this could have been something that's kind of referenced down the line but at this point david's killed like one guy right this is a bit of an exaggeration you could attribute the philistine victory in general to david having slayed goliath but the point is in an over-the-top way they are celebrating both saul and david what was uncommon was for them to use two names together to talk about Saul in the first line, and then jump to David, and it was not lost on Saul, whose name got attached to the larger number of people that had been defeated. And he interprets it in the worst light possible. Just names together is going to throw Saul into this tailspin, and you're going to see the rest of 1 Samuel is Saul trying again and again in a more openly and blatant fashion to try to take out David. David. In the meantime, as we see David's humble ascent, we're going to watch the sad fall, the Saul's descent here. Look in uh, Proverbs, it, it's going to reference what's going on in Saul's heart. Proverbs 27:21. fire tests the purity of silver and gold, but a person is tested by being praised. So just like metal is tested through fire to see its purity... The character and the purity of one's heart is often revealed when it's tested by praise. So we ask ourselves, how do I respond when someone praises me? Or maybe let's say it this way, how are you responding when someone doesn't praise you? Or praises someone else instead of you? Does praise or does it puff you up? That may be an indication of whether or not you're ready for that promotion or that next step and here's what we're going to see from saul as he is because saul's being praised here too we're going to show how it throws him off a steep steep cliff we use anger as an emotion to protect ourselves from other vulnerable feelings that usually when we're feeling angry there's actually something a deeper emotion that we're feeling and it's often been called, anger is called an iceberg, right? Just like you see only the top of the iceberg. But the majority of it is lying below the surface. Anger oftentimes is, is just the tip. And at the bottom, we're feeling hurt or humiliated or rejected or afraid. I remember here at the church, we used ministry for kids when I was a kid called Sports Spectacular. My dad, he was the children's pastor at the time. And you'd thought there'd been some nepotism that he'd hook me up. That is not how it went. My dad put me on the teal team and I don't want to talk because I wanted to be on the purple team. And you know why? Because the purple team was awesome. The purple team had Chet Nettles. Purple team had Mike Burmeister. I know that was my reaction. Couldn't believe it. Why would you put me on the purple team? Now I got angry at my dad for putting, excuse me, for putting me on the teal team and not the purple team. Why? Why was I angry? That was the emotion I was displaying, but underneath of that, I was hurt, right, that he would do that. I was jealous. I wanted to be on the winning team, right? I wanted to be on the team with Chet and Mike. I remember I was driving home, uh, I was, oh, excuse me, I was driving to physical therapy this, this winter uh, for my hip, and I was already going to be like just on time, and I was driving through town, got stuck behind one of the plow trucks, turning up the ice, driving like negative miles an hour somehow. And I am losing it, right? I am smashing the steering wheel. Just got to openly confess these things. I am just yelling at the top of my lungs all sorts of you know, Bible verses. I was just <laughs> furious. Now, I was furious. Now, but what was it? I'm I'm angry on the surface, but below, I'm afraid that I'm going to be late, and I'm thinking I'm going to disappoint. I'm going to let down the physical therapist in my pride. I'm going to look bad like a fool who can't get to physical therapy on time. Ephesians chapter 4 says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Listen, anger is an emotion that is not inherently wrong, but it is when you let it control you. Don't let the sun go down on while you are still angry, the New Living says, for, here's why, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. Saul didn't heed this former Saul then turned Paul in Ephesians, and he gives the devil a foothold. Now what's below Saul's anger? Let's get the scuba gear on and go into the icy waters and look at the bottom of the iceberg, because below his anger, we're going to see envy. Now I know that this inside out girl is technically disgust and not envy but just deal with it okay it's green it's envy just I'm preaching just leave me alone verse nine Saul eyed David from that day forward what are the patterns if you've been following along in first Samuels there's a lot of looking going on looking at appearance at stature now this time when Saul it says he eyed David the Hebrew here means to watch with jealousy he's not just looking at him he's giving him the stink eye He's looking at what David has, what David's receiving, and he's not, and he is filled with jealousy or envy. Proverbs 14 says, a peaceful heart leads to a healthy body, but jealousy is like cancer in the bones. The jealousy are insidious, and they destroy us from the inside out. What's happening? What's going on there? It's it's the pain that we feel when you feel envy. It's the pain you feel when, when somebody else has something that you feel like you should have, right? They've got the new iPhone, and I'm still over here with a fool with that home button. What's up with that? Or, or what about the, they got the promotion that, that I was hoping for? For me, it's easy to look at, at other churches that are bigger and better. Just kidding, you guys are the baby. What about that praise or acknowledgement that someone else got when you're going, well, what about what I did? What about me? Andy Stanley and, and many others have called it the comparison trap. See, in our flesh... When we're playing this game, what we're always going to be doing is comparing ourselves with somebody else. And when we're doing that, you're only left with one of two alternatives. Either you're jealous that they have more than me or better things than me, or I I like who they are better than I like myself, or it's judgment. You're looking down on them. I'm better than you. I have better things than you. It's one of the two. And at the heart of this, as with all sin, is pride. That's what we're dealing with here. And Dr. Bob Cook, he said it this way, we all, every single one of us, wear a sign that says, please make me feel important. I want to be on the top. Do you remember the game King of the Hill? You play it in the playground, and you push each other, try to get to the top of the hill, and there can only be one king. It's not kings of the hill. It's king of the hill. And when you're playing the game of king of the hill in your life, everybody else becomes what? They become a threat competition to take your little kingdom away. I mean, think about it. Saul is being praised here. They're praising him for the thousands he's killed, it says. He's not being neglected. In fact, he's getting more praise than he is due. Saul's been an awful king. But for Saul, it wasn't enough. Why? Because somebody else was being praised for slaying more than he had. And for the insecure person, which is the other side of pride... They're wearing a sign that says, everyone else is better than me. Nobody loves me. Nobody loves Raymond. And jealousy is rooted in our feelings of inadequacy and self-doubt. Now, what should have Saul's attitude been here? Do you remember the story in John chapter 3? Here's John the Baptist. He had been making the way for Jesus. Everyone's coming, getting baptized by him. He's got all these followers. And then Jesus comes. And slowly, people start following Jesus instead of John. And his disciples come to him. He goes, dude, check, what's up with this? Gonna flip out like everybody's following Jesus now and not you. And he goes, John says, what, what was his response? It's such a beautiful word. He says, He must increase and I must decrease. This is, he's the one that this is all about. He's the one I've been pointing people to. What's it the opposite of pride? It's humility. John says, That's why I'm here. And, and Saul should have responded in a similar fashion in this humble way of saying, man, my kingdom was taken away from me because of my disobedience. I have to own that. And he should have been willing to step aside and humbly accept whoever God was bringing in next. But instead, it leads him to the following actions. When these emotions control us, They lead to devastating destructive behavior. Look at verse 10. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre for him to soothe him, should we note, as he did day by day. Every day David is serving Saul. Saul had a spirit. And if you read the story, you know where this is going. Verse 11. Saul hurled the spirit for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Jealousy always starts out subtle. Just starts in the head, maybe a look. Before you know it, you're chucking spears at people. Now you go, wait a minute. Can we just circle back to where it says David twice? I'm thinking, David, are you familiar with the expression, fool me twice, shame on me? Like, if I'm David and I'm playing the liar for Saul, first one, dodge a spear. Probably not going, verse (laughs) 2, like, I've met my non-negotiable, right? Concert's over, bro. You throw spears at me and I'm out. Like, that's just the deal that we did. It wasn't in the contract, but that's how I'm going to roll. I'm thinking, we're watching here David live out, put feet to what Jesus talks about, forgiving someone 70 times 7. And over the course of this story, we're going to see David forgiving and loving Saul over and over again the way that God loves us. And forgives us over and over again through Christ. We see Saul's anger. We see Saul's jealousy or envy. And then we see Saul's fear. We see his fear. Verse 12. Saul was afraid of David. Why? Because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So he clearly sees the Lord is leading David and he's not leaving me. He's not leading me anymore. He's left me. Prideful jealousy will lead to fear, paranoia, suspicion, Now Saul's primary concern, had he been walking with God in love, would have been for his people, right? The king is supposed to care for and protect, be concerned about the welfare of his people, and then the honor of the one true king, the king of kings. But instead, where are Saul's eyes? They're on himself, and when we do that, when we put our eyes on ourselves, inevitably it will lead to fear. You remember the story in the New Testament of Peter walking on the water. The minute he takes his eyes off Jesus, puts them on the waves, which, by the way, is a freaky circumstance, but when he's looking at circumstances, instead of his Savior, he begins to freak out. We will live in fear when we put our eyes anywhere else but the face of our Savior. And he begins to fear the very real waves and becomes blind to the real storm controller. But Saul's demise continues as these actions increase, and he tries some more subtle tactics. He's going to put David in harm's way by getting him out of the battle down to verse 20. Now Saul's David, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. He sees that his daughter's got the hots for David, and he goes, hmm, I can leverage this. Verse 21, Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. He's got a plan, and he's going to unfold that here in verse 25. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, he sent in a servant with this message. The king desires no bride price. In other words, if you want Michael, and I know you do, here's going to be your price. No no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Ask your parents when you get home. (laughs) That he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So here's Saul, like an evil villain, going, what? David, will die at the hand of the Philistines as he tries to get these foreskins for Michael. And in the process, he'll be out of my hair and the kingdom will be mine, right? Saul has lost his mind at this point. He's doing anything possible to get rid of David. Now, what's interesting here is we see this tactic play out later, don't we? When's another time that we see a king trying to put someone in the midst of battle to die to cover up their sins? David himself. It's Bathsheba's husband out on enemy lines in hopes that he'll die to cover up this spiral of sins that he's committed. David's no spotless lamb either, we'll clearly see in our story. We got one protagonist, one true good guy. But of course, Saul's attempts backfire on him big time. Look at verse 26. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law, before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. He doubles the bride price. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter a wife, because have got to stay true to your word. Verse 28, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, seeing the victory, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually, and we'll see that in our story. He is until the day that he dies. Verse 30, Then the commander of the Philistines came out to the battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. David's in a better place than he was before. Instead of dying, he's even more successful from the battle. Now you read, chapter 19, which we don't have time to do this morning, and there's this comedy of errors four times that David tries to kill David, and four times, Saul tries to kill David, and four times that God sovereignly rescues, spares David and Saul, and the process has completely gone off his rocker. They you ask the question, man, how in the world could this one little shepherd boy cause all these problems for Saul, driving him to attempted murder, how could David alone cause all of this? Well, I love the way Warren Wearsby says it. David didn't create problems for Saul. He revealed the deep-seated problems that were already there. You see, this isn't about David at all. This is about Saul's sinful heart. The foundation of Saul's problems began before he even knew it was a thing. Saul's already out of fellowship with the, the Lord. His sins of disobedience have been well documented back in chapters 13 and 15. He had disobeyed God's word, failed to believe God's heart for him to go his way. And as a result, his crown is removed. And then God's very spirit, his personal presence is removed from Saul. Remember chapter 16. Now the spirit of the Lord departs. He's left him, the one that empowers him. Now make no mistake here. This is not God abandoning Saul. This is Saul abandoning his God. It tells us that we cannot walk with God and in sin at this time. First John compares it to walking in the light versus walking in the dark. And you can't walk in the light and in the dark at the same time. Have you ever tried it? You failed because it's possible. If you're walking in the light and someone turns the light off, you're now walking in darkness. You can't be in the dark and in the light simultaneously. And he says, in the same way, you can't walk in sin and walk with your God at the same time. Read 1 John with me. He says, this is the message, chapter 5, that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light, he's perfect, he's pure and holy. And in him, there's no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him in the light where he is, while we're walking in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. Says if you say you're walking with God, but you're walking in sin, you're lying because you can't be in the dark and the light at the same time. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship, and look, it says, with one another not just that we have fellowship with God. The only way to have healthy, functioning relationships is is to have healthy, functioning relationship with our God. And how is that possible? And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The only way we can go out of darkness into the light is the son who transferred us there through his life, death, and burial and resurrection. Now, it says that the spirit left Saul, it departed from Saul as a believer, We live in a different time period. We live in a time period where Jesus is calling out a bride for himself. The church is what we call it, the called out ones. And those who are in Christ, Ephesians 1 tells us, receives the Holy Spirit permanently, a guarantee of what is to come, a guarantee. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and go as we see him doing in the Old Testament. But even as a Christian, we can be saved, we can be a child of God, without losing that status as his children, but we can still walk out of fellowship, which is what he's referring to here in 1 John, with the Lord. That we're not walking with God, we're walking on our own way for a period of time. And in Romans, the language that it uses in chapter 8, Paul says it's walking in the flesh versus walking in, the flesh, in our old nature versus walking in our new nature in Christ. And when we're walking in that flesh, the only option, the only thing that will come of that is sin. Scripture often uses this as like a a fruit analogy from a tree. When we were in Hawaii on our honeymoon, there was all this fantastic fruit. You guys won't believe this as Alaskans. There's places where fruit's just literally growing on trees. I know. It's amazing. They had papaya, they had pineapple. They had these things called apple bananas. No, not apples and bananas. Apple bananas. Like it's something like Dr. Seuss crazy world there. And so they, they had these fruit stands everywhere. You could buy this fruit. Now you come to Alaska and you're not finding fruit on our trees by and large, right? Why? Because we got different trees. So they produce different fruit. We got weak little pathetic ones where we live, right? Instead of bearing fruit, what do we get from our trees? Allergies. That's about it. The root, the tree itself, dictates the kind of fruit that's produced. And Romans 8 makes that point. It says, letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. If the sin nature is your root, here's the fruit you will produce. But letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Verse 7, the sinful nature is always hostile toward God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will because it's from the wrong root. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God, we cannot honor our king when we're walking in the flesh. Walking in sin will always lead to death and destruction, and Saul is a perfect case study for this. When Saul's root is in self, is in his sin nature, what is produced? Pride, anger, jealousy, fear. It's the only thing that can come. actually leads him to attempted murder. Now, you've probably seen this in your own life, hopefully not necessarily attempted murder, but if you have experienced hatred or jealousy towards somebody else, and we've all walked through those roads, if you're paranoid, you find yourself suspicious, living in fear, your mind is set on the flesh, and it always, always, always leads to destruction. The word death means separation. And so when we're walking in the flesh, it will always lead to separation. Separation between us and God, not walking in fellowship with him, and it's separation with others. We will experience nothing but fractured, broken, harmful relationship when we're walking in And listen, if that's you today, that needs to change. You've got to stop. You've got to go a different direction. Because you're hurtling toward death and destruction. But the good news, the gospel says there's hope. There was hope for Saul from the story that we read. He did not take it. There is hope for us today, my friend. There's a remedy, but there's only one. Back to 1 John, the way he sums up the first chapter, he says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. The is not in us. So he says the hope is not trying to tell God, oh, look, I'm not sinning, I don't sin. He says you're calling God a liar if you're trying to say that you don't sin. The gospel is not that we clean up our act in order to be accepted by God. That's the opposite of the gospel. God's, John says you're a liar if you go that route. No, the hope of the gospel is not that our sin isn't real. It's that our sin is very real, but our Savior is very real. Amen? The good news of the gospel, as we saw from David last week as a, as a symbol of Jesus, was that he crushed the head, just like David slayed the head of, the, the, of Goliath the giant, that Jesus crushed the head of sin and death. How? By dying himself. By paying the penalty for our sins and our death, and then giving us his right standing with the Father. So, he says here, for the believer that's, that's walking, he says, if, 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 there's the condition, if we confess our sins, if there is repentance, if we call it for what it is, not pretending that it's not there, but for what it really is, sin, he says he is faithful because our God never changes. He will always do this, and he's just, he's right is what that word means. The reason he's right, the reason he can forgive it is because Jesus already footed the bill, He's faithful and just to forgive us, he says, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, even the sins that we're not confessing, and to restore us to fellowship, a walk with our God because of what Christ has done for us. So let's apply this truth as we land the plane to Saul's sins in these two chapters, and then as we hold up that mirror to the sin of our flesh when we walk ourselves. The gospel addresses our pride. Remember we said we all hold up a sign that says make me feel important. And here's the brilliance of the gospel. The gospel addresses both sides of our pride. It addresses the arrogant side by humbling us and saying you're a helpless sinner. On your own there's no way to impress God or to get ahead of anybody else. It's a level playing field in his eyes. But the gospel also is the insecure, fearful side of pride by exalting us. But not in ourselves. Not by saying, oh, you actually are better than other people. But by saying, in Christ, you're forgiven. In Christ, you're accepted. And the one who's been lifted above every other name, yeah, you're seated with him in the heavenly places. The gospel both humbles us and exalts us. And it results in a boast, not in ourselves being better than anybody else, but a boast in the cross and who my Savior is for me and what my Savior did on my behalf. There is value. We each are important. We were created in His image and then redeemed through the blood of Jesus. We have value and worth, but it's not in our ability to be better than anybody else. It was in our trust in Christ to be something for us that we could never be. The gospel also touches on our envy. See, we said envy stems from insecurity and self doubt, how wearying it is to always be comparing ourselves with other people. And the gospel says we find our security, we find our contentment in no other circumstance and comparing ourselves with no other person, but we find it only in our new identity, Christ. And here's the beautiful thing. We find our identity not in how we're better or worse than anybody else, but in him. It actually frees us up to actually love people. And we can enter into this space where we can rejoice with those who rejoice, the Bible says, and to weep with those who weep. Instead of being so hung up on our own stuff, when someone else is successful, we can celebrate genuinely with them. And when they're going through the valley, we can bawl our eyes out with them. But when we're curled up in the flesh, we're too busy looking through our own stuff to be able to see it. Saul could have been joyful for David. He could have been celebrating that David won a victory. After all, it was for his own people and himself. And we can choose that today, too, in the, in the gospel. And then the last one here, or no, excuse me, the second to last one, he addresses fear, 1 John 4, verse 18. Do you know the verse? Perfect love casts out fear. When we understand and believe that we are loved unconditionally by our Savior. Think about this for a second. The most powerful being in the universe loves us, And in Christ, Romans says, nothing can separate us from that love. That he will always and ever be for us, in our corner, using everything for good. If that's true, then what in the world do we have to be afraid of? What human, what circumstance can throw him off his plan? No one. Perfect love casts out fear. We're in the palm of his good, loving hands. And the gospel deals with anger. We said anger is an area of emotion. And so when the primary emotions are in their healthy place, when we're experiencing humility, not pride, when we're experiencing love and not envy, when we're experiencing stability and security in Christ and not fear, what's the result? We're not going to experience unrighteous anger, but we will experience suffering and patience. Remember Romans 8 said, the mind of the spirit, the one letting the spirit control your mind leads to what? Life and peace. Death leads to, or sin leads to death. It's separation. What's the opposite of separation? It's bringing back together. When we're walking in the spirit, we bring things together and broken. And through the power of the gospel, we see peace brought in to this very unpeaceful world. We see Jesus restoring things that have been broken. We see him bringing order into a world that's chaotic, and we can be a part of that redemption process instead of being part of the one that kills and destroys. Let's walk with him in the power of the gospel, part of bringing this life and peace to the world. Father, we we pause and we look in our own hearts, and I know I see Saul. I see the pride. I see my fear. Oh, I see my jealousy, the constant comparison. Lord, I see how close anger is bubbling up to the surface when I'm following somebody that's driving too slow. Father, I'm wrong. It's not that our sin's not real, and I know other brothers and sisters in this building today, they're tracking with that. They see that in their own heart. Maybe it's somebody today that's never placed their faith in Christ, has never experienced anything but death and destruction. That they might turn today while there is still hope and find Jesus. Find the one who's not saying that your sin's not real. Don't worry about it. It's all good. But say it's very real and in fact it's so real that I came to this world to die for it. To pay for it and to give you my life so that you could be reunited in life with my God. And Father, if there's a brother or sister today walking in sin. And not walking in the light but walking in darkness that they would choose today to repent to choose the day to confess that sin, to experience not just the forgiveness of that sin and the cleansing, but then you then in your spirit, you, you point us on the right path. And as I read this morning with you and your word, you said in Galatians 2, you said that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, that, Father, we would have eyes to see that you've actually taken us out by the roots and put us into a whole new tree. And the reason today that there's any hope for not just producing Saul's fruit of anger and fear and jealousy and anger, but producing the Spirit's fruit of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of actually being kind and gentle with people, of experiencing a level of self-control in our walk, it's through the power of Jesus that because he lives and I'm now united with him plugged into a brand new tree, I can see all this new wonderful fruit, not that leads to death and destruction, but that leads to life and peace. May we be a people who are quick to confess and repent our sins and continue to walk with you like Anna Martin in New Zealand, making disciples, preaching the gospel and ushering in the kingdom of life and peace. that can only be done the cross and resurrection of our Jesus and it's in his name, his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.